Welcome back to The Francisca Show, where we encourage fellow artists and entrepreneurs to collaborate and support each other while sharing their stories. I'm Francisca, a singer, composer, music producer, and also your host. And just before we begin the show, I'd like to thank our sponsors. ShopDrop is an iPhone app that lists every sample sale in New York. So if you want to buy designer clothes without breaking the bank, go to your iPhone and download the ShopDrop app today. Welcome, Alex Fletcher, to The Francisca Show, columnist, educator, and freelance writer. And I got some inside information that now you're going to be focusing only on the writing and you're leaving the classroom. So congrats on that. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. You are a writer. That That is your form of art. And I'd like to really dive into the topics of impact the impact that you're creating in the Jewish community with your art form. So I think that's going to be the theme of our talk today. Yeah, so let's just start right from the beginning. You grew up in Baltimore. So I actually grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, but and we did live in Baltimore. Once we got married, we were in Baltimore for nine years. So I guess I sort of grew up there too. (laughs) So it's actually very interesting. I love how you phrased writing as an art form. Um, because I really was born into a family of artists. Uh, My father is an actual painter, is an actual artist, and he channeled his abilities into the advertising field. He was an art director in big companies, advertising agencies in in London and in New York City. And um, as I was growing up, he really was a freelance, freelance art director, so worked from home. He had a home office. And this was before... Everything was, you know, transferred onto, um, you know, graphic design and everything with computers. And I always remember him coming home after I'd come home from after school and he'd be sitting at his easel with all of his markers. And as an art director, you're creating the, you know, artistic design and the concept of the advert, you know, of the ad. And he would be, you know, literally with markers. It's, it's really funny, right? Like the, the world has changed. Oh, yeah. Be drawing up these ads. Um, and he ultimately had to transfer over to the, te- you know, to the technological piece with graphic design. And that was, it was challenging for him. My mother, interestingly, was a um, stylist. So she was responsible for the wardrobe and for props, depending on the shoot, for commercials and, and, and ads. Um, again, national campaigns. They were both very, very artistic, very creative people. And I grew up in a creative home. So um, it's, it's really true. Writing is, a, is, is really an art, is an art form. It's, it's the opportunity to describe and express yourself and your ideas through the, the written medium. And I think that my parents really served as role models for me. So when I was thinking about, you know, ultimately what I wanted to do professionally, the first answer was advertising. Um, I went to Stern College. I majored in English communications. And essentially, I remember taking some courses at FIT. Stern has this partnership with the Fashion Institute of Technology. And I took, I was sitting in this advertising class and listening to the professor thinking, I know all about this from my parents. (laughs) I guess I was a little haughty. But then I also had this sort of epiphany sitting in this advertising class that like, wait, what am I doing? Like, I know this, I feel like this is part of my blood, but I'm not sure that I actually want to be doing this. And that took me to sort of my journey into teaching, ultimately. 
Um, I had an internship at HUK, which is Asia Tour in Hendon in London. And my job there was to do communications, um, write up their annual report. And, you know, it, it's really about those like epiphanies where you, you we look back in your life and you think about realizations that you had that helped you make decisions. I remember sitting at the computer writing about the programming that Isha Torah was doing and the teaching and, you know, uh, and, and their outreach and thinking, I don't want to be writing about this. I actually want to be doing this. But um, didn't go into a career of Kiruv, but really went into a career of education where I balanced my love of English, my love of literature, um, my love of writing, teaching that, as well as had many opportunities over the past 15 years to teach the Wudek Kodesh as well. So what happens next? Essentially, my husband was learning um, in Neri Sterl in the Kolal, and he was there for five years. I was the Kolal wife, if you will, supporting him, teaching. Uh, and I never was planning on marrying the Kolal guy. I went to Stern. Like, I wasn't, wasn't like ideologically that's what I needed or wanted. It's just, you know, the person who I met, this is what he wanted to do. Um, he had just come back from a, a, a number of years in Israel as a Baal Tshuva and wanted to continue his learning, and I wanted to support him. This is the person I was marrying. So this is what we did. And it was five years, and he had plans. He thought maybe he was going to go into, like, a community call like his friends. I would have been thrilled with that. That's something that I really wanted to do. Um, he was thinking about teaching. He substituted in the school that I was teaching at, but ultimately decided, gosh, fourth year into Kolal, that uh, he w- his like in- nascent dream that he never really had explored was to go to medical school. His mother, his, excuse me, his grandmother was an OBGYN in communist Russia. So it's like in his genes. And he said, we thought, are there shortcuts? You know, we had already had like two kids at the time. Are there shortcuts? PA, XYZ. He's like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go for it. So I went from cola wife to medical school wife, um, you know, supporting him then for four years in medical school at University of Maryland. Thank God he got in locally. We had in-state tuition. But all this time we were, you know, we were not supported by family. We had student loans. We had my meager teacher salary. We lived very frugally. It was in total of nine years in Baltimore between those two areas. Um, and then we came to Cleveland for for his residency, and we've stayed ever since. Now he's been working for, gosh, I, I've lost track. Once you get to the end goal, I'm like, it's all a blur. I think he's been working out for like four years as an internist um, here in Cleveland. Wow. So, so you're at the end of the tunnel. I'm very familiar with this because my at aunt the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a whole journey. We have a whole support group, Facebook. I mean, anyone who's like supported their husband through schooling, whatever the schooling is, they deserve a huge pat on the back because it's it's quite an accomplishment. Oh yeah, especially while raising a family and starting this journey later on. Sometimes. Yeah, we finished residency, and my son was in. He was, um, no, the beginning of residency, my oldest was was in third grade. So it took a long time. I want to get a little more background on your hashkafa just because your hashkafa comes through a lot in your writing Mm -hmm. and you do have a whole mission in your writing that you're trying to achieve through your art form. So Mm -hmm. I just want to know how you grew up. You mentioned how you married someone, not necessarily hashkafically what you were looking for in terms of career paths or, you know, a kolo guy, but you married a person and you were supporting his dreams. So I want to know if there were any hashkafic changes or shifts throughout your life. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, I grew up 
I went to Yeshiva High School, you know, a co-ed Yeshiva High School. My family actually didn't become observant until I was 12. So I was in public school up until that point. And, um, you know, it was a, a journey, like a Jewish journey that our family took together as we slowly became more observant. You know, I didn't stop wearing pants until 11th grade. I went on McClell at NCSY the summer of 11th grade, which was going into 12th, which was absolutely transformative um, and helping me like get a vision of who I wanted to become and meet role models and Madrichot and other amazing girls, you know, from schools all over the country who like I had just zero exposure to because I was in this, you know, Yeshiva High School with like very few other Orthodox friends. Our school happened to have a lot of conservative, um, even reform students. So we were the we were the minority. We call ourselves the Orthodox. Um, so like every, being religious was always this positive battle, if you will. It was always this this journey, you know, that I always had to fight that I always had to think about in every single day of school, you know, was I going to stand up in the lunchroom and walk across, you know, across the, the entire room to go wash my hands for Habotzi and like identify myself as that crazy Orthodox kid. Um, and I think that natural, prog- be, being in that environment made me more growth oriented, I think. It could have had very negative effects, of course, and I wouldn't put my children in that, you know, bidyevit, if you will, on purpose. But for me, it accomplished tremendous things, which it was that it helps you always realize that I had like a vision for myself. I needed to get there. I needed to work to get to it. So after high school, I went to Dar Chibita and loved to learn, was very motivating and motivated, excuse me, and like catching up because of my weaker background, catching up on my skills. And um, I think hashkafically, my husband and I were very much on the same page. It's just, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm very practical. So like supporting my husband and Kolo, I don't know. To me, it was just like, I wasn't ready for that. And I wasn't indoctrinated, if you will, or taught that growing up that that's what I should do, or that's what I should aspire to. So in a way, it was an other place blessing because it was like I made the choice to do this and I I'm gonna work for this and I have a reason for this I'm not doing this just because everybody else is doing it right so I hear a some resemblance I first of all I had the same thing when I went to seminary I felt like I was catching up on my on my Hebrew skills my learning and also the same idea of be, trying to be super practical with mm-hmm. <laughs> with life choices and um, yeah, yeah, it's funny. My husband just now, he wanted to go to Israel for a year. And I was like, how can I support the family in Israel? Like, how can we, how can we do this? I can't, like, I want to teach in America. Like, I can't speak Hebrew. And like, I shut it down right away. And then like, sometimes I think, I'm like, gosh, what would have happened if we had just spent a couple of years? I love Israel, you know, how would have life been different? But we have to work with, you know, our, our personality and our strengths and, and, and try to find the, you know, the right balance when we make our life decisions. We can't go back and make regrets. Absolutely. Okay, so how did you gain your credibility or how did you get into Mishpacha? And so just for to- our audience out there, anyone who doesn't know, Mishpacha is one of the most popular mainstream media outlets for the right-wing Orthodox community. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Um, their readership, it's 40,000 people across the globe. Pretty amazing. Um, and this, you know, of course, it's, as I told you, I was a teacher primarily and only the last five years I started writing. So it's not like I just pitched something to Mishpacha right when I started, you know, this has obviously been an evolution and it goes back to what I was saying before, um, where this journey of mine 
first as someone who was like supporting her husband who was a learner and then that that person decided to change identities and become you know a student a medical student at the bottom rungs right Mm -hmm. and have to work himself up and then a resident and then finally get a job and change his whole track that was significant for me because I obviously am his wife and I'm obviously the supporter of that and that's gonna change the the direction and the you know projection of our life and once we had already moved to Cleveland in the middle of his residency um, yeah, I'm teaching. Everything's fine. Like really no desire to start writing on my own. And um, back to those epiphanies. I don't know what they are about. I've had a few in my life. Here's another one. Um, I was thinking about like the amazing men um, from men in our communities who work, you know, very intense jobs and who nonetheless find time to go to Minyan, to have a chavrusta. And even if they're not learning, because it is very, very hard to find time to learn when you are like super involved in your work day and you may have very little time left. But just the fact that like a man is religious in the outside world with all of the, you know, temptations and all the challenges in the work environment and to maintain his values, I was, I just like had this epiphany, like for myself, like, wow, these men are our heroes. And very much in the yeshivish world, which again, are, you know, did we identify with that or not? You know, my husband, we were in the Nair Yisrael. If you speak to people in Israel, they say Nair, or, or like where they may joke that Nair Yisrael is not Yeshivish. You know, it, it, it could be more aligned with like Chavetz Chaim, a little bit more um, center of the road, if you will, like, and, you know, the general uh, comparison of, of, of Yeshivas. But, um, you know, we're definitely like, well, yeah, I, I don't know, what can I say? We're, we more, we're like centrist, right of center. We're probably right of center, I think would be the right definition for us. But, um, you know, in the right-wing world, and I was teaching at that time at a very yeshivish girls' school. And, you know, I'm certainly enough of in this world that I know the ideals, you know, for men, our heroes are the men who are sitting and learning. And I went through that for five years, so I know there's something incredibly heroic about that and the world needs it to continue to spend. We need people who are learning full time. But I felt all of a sudden that there just wasn't enough of this recognition of men who are working and who are learning and how amazing these men are and how they really are our heroes in our community too. So I was like, wait, I have this idea. Wait, if I have an idea, maybe I should write about it. The question was where to write this, you know, who do I submit it to? And for years I had been a fan of Cross Currents, which is a blog. Um, The editor is Rabbi Yitzchak Adlerstein. Um, He is the head of the Simon Wiesenthal. Um, You know, I should get his title right. But he he was working for the Simon Wiesenthal Center in LA and now he's on sabbatical in Israel. And his blog was like always like the hot topics going on in the Orthodox world, you know, big thinkers, um, just like current events type of thing. And I'm like, you know what? I've always been a fan. Let me just submit my, my, this article. Let me write this and submit it to him. Um, which was about like supporting our husbands who support, you know, supporting our husbands who are supporting us. That's the idea. It's not just supporting men and, and, you know, who are learning. It's our, our men, our husbands are supporting us financially, even if we are supporting our families too, even if we are breadwinners at all as well, but we're doing it together. Um, and, you know, we need to support them. And Chaval for, and this is, this has been, 
discussed many times for women who feel disappointed when their husbands leave cold, which, okay, absolutely. You're leaving a certain rarefied, very spiritual life, you know, and that's going to affect you if your husband leaves the basement dish too. Got it. But wait a minute, we need those women more than ever to stand up and stay strong behind their husbands and support them as they go through this new journey, not to feel, oh, my, you know, feel bad that my husband's not learning anymore, and then, like, step away. We need even more engagement and more support and a different type of support that often our base of girls are not prepared for. So I wrote this whole thing, sent it out to Rabbi Allerstein. I needed my rabbi in Baltimore who had a connection, like, you know, give a little huskama, give, give some approval of me that I'm not this, like, random person out of nowhere. You know, I had a connection. He's like, great, let's publish it. So he published it and it, like, went viral for Cross Currents. And I realized, like, okay, I hit a nerve. From there on... Um, the Claw Perspectives Journal. Um, the editor at the time was Moish Bain, who's now the head of the OU. So he, um, they decided to write an entire issue of Claw, of Claw Perspectives on exactly this topic, the Ben Torah Baal Habas, the Ben Torah who's in the workforce. And now this topic, now we're hearing a lot about um, because it's been written about um, in a brand new book and it's been in the cover of Mishpacha magazine, a whole issue of Mishpacha was a special issue of Mishpacha was dealt, dealt with this topic but really the first time it really came out was with Call Perspectives I was the only female writer it was Charlie Harari it was a bunch of big rabbinim and it's Alexander Fletcher who in the world is she and I did a more elaborate version of my cross currents article really delving into it more how our girls and base Yaakovs are not really prepared to support husbands who are working um, and ultimately from there you asked how I got into Mishpach, are you ready? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> After my whole introduction. So what happened was, I at that point, I had already, like, got, got I, I don't know, I got bit, bug, bit by the writing bug. And it's so much fun when you're on social media sharing your articles and getting feedback and engaging with people that you've never met, you know, who tell you how much your piece meant to them. Um, so I was submitting all over the place, you know, Havraya, um, Times of Israel, Cross Currents. I got a couple of pieces on the front cover of the Five Towns Jewish Times, some print pieces, not just online, just having a great time writing. And um, actually, it's funny. I did one piece. Um, this one went, This one did better than my original Cross Currents piece. It, got, like, I think it was like 2,000, which for me is like, I don't know. There are people that share stuff that have like 50,000 shares. I, I don't get that that those numbers, but it did go viral according to Cross Currents where I was actually questioning and challenging one of Mishpacha's main um, editorial writers about a piece that he had written about like women at graduations and being on the side of the Mechitza. And I had some challenges for him. Uh, it's funny, now I'm in Mishpacha and my article this past week was right next to his. <laughs> but we originally started off as sort of like enemies where I really, really took him to the grind and that piece, um, that piece was, became very popular. But anyway, Mishpacha, this is what happened. I, I'm, you know, I, as much as I, I'm not going to say I'm an orthodox feminist, I don't align with the feminist orthodox movement where they are fighting for equality and ritual. But I do feel very strongly about women having a voice and an active presence in communal issues um, and involvement in that. And I felt with Mishpacha that they have this section called the Forum, which is um, their ed editorials. It's their like opin or opinion writers and op-ed writers, the thinkers. So this is in the main Mishpacha. It's right in the beginning. It's Jonathan Rosenblum, Eitan Kobri. You may have heard of Moshe um, Gerlich. You may have heard of these writers. These are like the big thinkers, right. you know, in the Orthodox world, the Mishmacha. 
And I was like, wait a minute, there needs to be a woman. You have to have a woman op-ed writer. Now, does Mishpacha have women writers? Yes. The main Mishpacha has women journalists, women reporters, but there weren't women opinion writers. There weren't women who were sharing their ideas, their commentaries about like communal Orthodox life, you know, issues, politics, that wasn't happening. So, and by the way, there's the Family First, which is the woman's magazine, family magazine. You've got tons of women writers writing about marriage, about child rearing, about issues, about recipes. But I wanted, <clears throat> my type of writing is op-ed writing. It's opinion writing. So I reached out to um, the chief, the managing editor of Mishpach Magazine, who's a female. And I said, hi. This took me a lot of guts. Hi, wanted to know if you'd be interested. I, you know, I'm a writer. Here's some links. I would love to write an opinion piece in your magazine. So she came back to me and she said, I've heard your name. And she probably heard my name from that piece that went viral where I challenged one of her writers. <laughs> and she said, like, send me some more of your work. And I did. And she said, great. Like, let's put you on a trial basis. Let's see how our readers react to you. And like when I first was published, it's like you flip through the first few pages and it's these big rabbis. And then it's just Alexandra Fletcher. And there's no doubt, like, who is this person? Well, she's not a Rebetzin, so there's no clout there. She's not married to a rabbi. You know, like, she has a known name. She's just this person. But that's the thing about writing, is what are op-ed writers? They're just people. They don't need the credentials. <clears throat> of course, in Orthodox, you know, um, magazines, it, we do really care about credentials. <clears throat> we care about, you know, your title. You know, your yichas, if you will. I had none of that. And that's why I'm so grateful to be part of this is that I'm just a writer. I'm just like a thinker. I'm just an observer. And that's the merit that I have being included in, in the forum at Mishpacha. Very elaborate. I feel like I got many of the details. So my big elephant in the room question yeah. is <laughs> the the photos of women in Mishpacha. And I know you said you're not an Orthodox feminist, but you definitely have an opinion on this. And I want to know... Yeah maybe this is something you just let go and this is something you're not going to fight for just so you could have your opinions in there. I'm just making assumptions, but I'm sure there are certain things you say, you know what, I can't fight all the wars at once or I want to have my voice on the platform for these communities, which is why I'll have to... Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm going to have to say... <laughs> compromise okay. on what you compromise. believe. Compromise, absolutely. This is the big elephant in the room. One of the... <laughs> it's interesting. Like, one, during these past couple of years when my writing got more popular, one of the things that I've written about very passionately that made me popular <laughs> was uh, the importance of including women in our magazines and Orthodox media. And I referenced this Five Towns Jewish Times piece I mean, that I wrote a piece, they stuck it on the front cover. Um, it was called Faces of From Kite. I, I ended up getting speaking engagements because of this article. It really fought and it really expressed um, what the issues are, what the downsides, what the fallouts are of not publishing pictures of modest women in our media. So now you're thinking, oh my gosh, but wait a minute, I'm flipping through the magazine and you have all these op-ed writers with their headshots and then you get to Alexandra Fletcher and there's no picture. So what's going on? Like, what happened to that platform of mine that I cared about so passionately? Um, have I just succumbed? Have, or is this a compromise? And it's very, very important. A very important question. For those of you who have followed me, I think it needs to be asked. So this is my take. My take is I still strongly believe that it's incredibly important to have pictures of our modest women who serve as role models 
for the sake of our men, for the sake of our children, our young boys, our young girls, and for the sake of women. And if you're interested in following, you know, reading my argument, please feel free to Google it. It's called Faces of Fromkite. Could you just give a little synopsis? Um... Oh, sure. Um, the idea is that over the last couple of decades, really since the demise of the Jewish Observer, which was in a good publication, it was a right-wing publication that did publish pictures of women. Apparently, the last the last year or two, they stopped. Um, they they got they were out of print. I think they stopped early two thousands. But we've had pictures of women. There hasn't been an issue historically. We never deemed it to be unsnias. What happened was with the Orthodox publications that came on the floor in Israel, they set the standard. Hamodia, Yatzed, and then when our glossy magazines came about they weren't going to deviate from that they're going to continue that sensitivity you may say or practice to not show pictures of women um certainly there are there are communities in the orthodox community in israel abroad in the united states that do not feel it's appropriate to show pictures of women and they continue to do that so basically what's happened is we're sort of looking back and we're thinking wait a minute what what messaging does that give? And um, I basically go through a number of items. One is that it provides a confusion about modesty standards and practices in, in mainstream orthodoxy, when all of a sudden people think it's not modest to have a picture of a face of a woman, or even might say it's usser or you know pritzas, if you will, you know, really boundary breaking. Whereas that's never been a problem. Um, it gives unhealthy messaging regarding the visibility of women being inappropriate. It provides an inability to combat the barrage of immodest images of women in the general media when we have nothing to fight back, when our teens have no other option um, to see alternatives <laughs> to the half-naked woman that we have in, in you know, social media and on our billboards. Um, extremist portrayal of Orthodox Jews, and lastly, a lesson presence of women in orthodox life so that that's that's basically it but how i deal with it and the the conclusions that i had to make is my mushal my analogy is that i feel like i'm the little mermaid where the reality is in orthodox journalism right now um, i have to make a choice between my voice or my face just like the little mermaid had to make a choice between her voice and her legs and it is so important to me more than my face, more than my headshot, to have an Orthodox woman in the forum, which is the opinion section of the Mishpacha, alongside men to have a voice in the communal conversation. And if that means I can't have my picture right now, I hope, please God, one day we'll get there. But if I can't have it now, I will not give up this opportunity. I will not give up this voice because the things that I write about are issues that pertain to um, people in the religious community, struggles, challenges, inspiring insights. Um, I've dealt with topics such as, you know, materialism. I've addressed a number of times, which I think is an, as a real challenge in the Orthodox world to conformity, to Bali Chuva, um, to taking ideas that are mainstream, secular, positive ideas like grit, and my last piece was about Benny Brown's ideas about vulnerability and bringing them to the Orthodox world. This is such a valuable opportunity. This is a voice. And this is, besides, you know, the fact that I'm, I'm translating this and bringing it out, I'm also 
from a feminist perspective, if you want to say female, per- I don't want to say feminist, even just a female perspective showing the Orthodox world, which has dominantly had men in these positions who are the ones who are communicating the ideas, then here's a woman too. Here's a woman too that's not writing about parenting, marriage, you know, all of those other cliche topics, which are very important, but we have a think a woman who's presenting herself as a thinker of communal Jewish issues. And that's an opportunity that I, I will not give up because I feel that the, my voice is more important than my face. If I can also differentiate family first is also targeting women's issues and then yeah. being an op-ed writer for the Mishpacha magazine, you're also bringing your thoughts that are relevant to the male that segment. Very, yeah, very, very important to me. I always said if she had offered me, the editor, um, a column in family first, I wouldn't have even taken it. I'm not interested in that. I want to be a voice that everyone reads, not just women. Um, I think it's very important for men, for rabbis, for the from Orthodox world to realize that, um, you know, what, and many do. I'm not, I don't want to make them, to paint them in this one broad, broad stroke that like they're misogynist, God forbid. But, you know, th- that, th- that women are part of this communal conversation. That's the language that I use. I think it's very important. And I've had such amazing feedback from Rabbanim, from, you know, whether they're big rabbinim or just local rabbis who support what I'm doing and support what I'm writing. Um, I, I, just th- I think it's, I think honestly, it's a game changer. I think it's, it's an opportunity for people to think differently about, you know, stereotypical gender roles in our communities. So tell me a little bit more about your speaking engagements in these communities uh, from this column. So I would say, um, I'm not getting speaking engagements from the Mishpacha column per se, because Mishpacha audience is definitely in the more right wing, is the right wing, you know, yeshivish. Um, I've heard that really the audience is Balabatim, working professional yeshivish, but um, a right wing shul isn't going to be bringing a female speaker. Engagements have come from more centrist shuls, from the OU. I'm on the OU Speakers, Speakers Bureau. I've been... I had the wonderful opportunity to um, be brought out by SKA in the Five Towns, a girls' school, to serve on a panel with Rochi Fryer and Judge Rochi Fryer and Sivan Rahav Meir, who's an Israeli journalist. I mean, I think in these communities and in also a number of modern Orthodox shuls across the tri-state area, um, Baltimore as well, these shuls have no problem bringing a female um, to speak, and I do speak in front of mixed audiences. The fact that I, I, I write at Mishpacha and I do talk about that, I think they find fascinating. I've also written for the forward. It's like, who writes for the forward at Mishpacha? Um, that's fascinating, but it's not that, you know, uh, Yeshiva Shibel is going to come bring me to speak as a Mishbacha columnist. That's not going to happen. Okay. Uh, I feel like I got some great backgrounds of the, of this online virtual world that we all <laughs> exist in and how they're interacting with each other. Right. Okay. So if there's anything you can change in and, and we're, we're taking the pictures out because I feel like that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's a superficial mm-hmm. symptom of the actual issues that are ongoing. And you talk about so many of these. Which ones are the highest ranking? If there's something we could change, what would be your top three issues? Okay. <laughs> One thing I'm, I'm very passionate about right now, and I've referenced this in a number of my articles in different manifestations, is the fact that many people in our communities are feeling a disconnect to Yiddishkeit and they're feeling a disconnect to orthodoxy 
and to Hashem and to themselves. And I think this manifests in so many different ways, how we feel less engaged, inspired by Judaism, less connected literally to it. And um, I think if we can tap into the whys of this and address the root issues, I think um, we'll be a healthier, stronger community and be able to pass on a healthier, stronger Yiddishkeit to our own children. But I see this lack of connection um, I think I, part of it is you mentioned social media. I mean, you know, I'm on Facebook and it, it's hard. Like when you see the crazy stuff that people do in the Orthodox community, you know, there's extreme cases of whatever it may be. And like, it's being shared and discussed and, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, how could it be? And then you just sort of get into this rut of like negativity of, of viewing our culture, our society of from kite in a negative way because we keep on having these negative articles being posted up on our feed and we're seeing that and we're forgetting to look inward at the beauty of our communities and the beauty of Judaism and we're just looking at the negativity and that has an effect on you especially if you're on social media um there are a few you know there are a few ways how it manifests but that's a number one for me right now is this this the staleness that I think a lot of us really do experience. Okay. Two and three, I think it's technology. Um, I, I struggle with it myself. I struggle raising my children. I have my oldest are teenagers trying to find that balance of healthy technology. I hate technology (laughs) in terms of smartphones. Like I just wish it was back to the nineties, you know, like I see how it's, I I just see how it's dominating. yeah. Say it again. Dominating. Dominating. Yeah. And it's, yeah. It's, it's infiltrated our lives in, in so many ways. And I just like want to like turn everything off and like go outside and just like, I don't know, be in nature and like enough already. Um, and I think that technology and smartphone usage has, we know what the detrimental effects are. And I, th- I, I think we'd be naive if we think it doesn't affect our, you know, our Judaism um, and, you know, how we feel in terms of, again, back to connection back to connection to Hashem and all the important stuff. I think it's a big distraction. And I, I would I would go back to our, our original discussion about like women in orthodoxy. I think women need more support, more spaces to connect. It's, it's really about the support and more feeling, you know, there's a lot of voices in our heads from the secular world. There's a lot of voices in our heads from, you know, the far left um, in orthodoxy, you know, about what if women are satisfied or if we're oppressed in orthodoxy. Um, and I think things like the OU, which has started this women's initiative, which is really tapping into the leadership and talents of our Orthodox women and creating initiatives and making those connections and making our community stronger. I think women, I think that's really important. You perfectly led us into the conversation of the new boom of Jewish women artists and this boom of new content and the the platform that the online world created for the Jewish Orthodox woman. As much as there is room for it and women need this kind of, you know, women by women mm-hmm. uh, empowerment and entertainment and inspiration, there's there's little acceptance or, in my opinion, I feel like there's, there's very little room to tolerate that. Mm-hmm. Meaning you feel like the world of the arts for women is like fringe and not being accepted by the right-wing community. It's accepted, but again, like anytime I did get a gig in a yeshivish community, community. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was told, 
uh, yeah, please come. And then don't do this. Don't move like that. Mm-hmm. Don't sing mm-hmm. this. Don't talk about this. And it, just that whole oppressed. I, I remember when I went to see Neshama Kabach perform. Um, I did that as part of my preparation for having her on my show, which we didn't wow. release yet. Um, I remember just crying and bawling completely and thinking wow. the reason I needed someone to help me script my concert was because because I needed to be censored. I was just sitting there. I said, I could talk like she can. And then I was oh. thinking the reason I need someone scripting me is because I can't talk like she can because I can't say half the things I want to say. Wow. Very interesting. Uh, so there definitely is this idea of censorship in the more right-wing community. And I think that challenges the very essence of what a performer is, what an artist is, you know, in the free-for-all secular art world, you know, that's the worst thing possible is to be censored in any way, morally, um, visually, you know, that. So now we have this issue is that we're observant, we're Torah observant, and the Torah does have guidelines as to morals and what's appropriate, um, you know, and modesty. And these are forms of censorship. If you want to look at it that way, it's just the reality, right? So you're not going to go up on a stage and start talking about, you know, certain private things between you and your spouse, because we believe that's immodest, you know, even though that might be great lyrics for your song. So I think that's just the tension that, that, that artists navigate. So I think it's a perpetual problem, a perpetual struggle, finding that balance is important. But like you said, when you're going into more right-wing communities who have more sensitivities, and I'll use that word to, you know, more guidelines as to what's appropriate, what you can say, how you should move, even if you're only with women, you know, maybe it's not appropriate to do X, Y, Z. You know, I I definitely feel, feel for that. And I, I, I see that as a struggle. Um, on the other hand, I understand when we're, you know, providing role models, I guess, for teenage girls and things like that, of like trying to like present the boss is all trying to present, you know, the from woman, if you will, the, you know, of our ideals, but how do you navigate that with also someone who by nature as an artist is going to be someone who's ex- expressive. Um, so I don't have any answers. I just know it's a tension and it's a perpetual tension because I think it goes back to that essence of, you know, the, the struggles that that religious artists have bridging those two worlds. Correct. And I know your recent piece on bringing in Brene Brown's research. So that really brought it home for me because there's a lot of vulnerability and I felt like right. there's so little of it I could actually use. Uh-huh. And when if you if for me, if you take the world role model or spiritual leader, it goes together with being vulnerable and showing the real face. And I feel like my mother, who is a Rebbitzin and a spiritual leader, has has embraced those vulnerable aspects. I feel like she uses that a lot in her teaching ever since I've known her, teaching about parenting. And I know Ruchi Kovel mm-hmm. also does that a lot. And mm-hmm. when people who are role models show real vulnerability, um, and again, they do that also obviously in a censored way or in a sensitive way, mm-hmm. that, that is when the most impact happens. And the the... The struggle, especially, I'm comparing educators to artists when they're being so constricted in their art forms. It's not just unpleasant for artists. I think it would be damaging also. Whenever I think, who is my target audience? Most of the time, the people I impact the most are aspiring artists or people who are interested in the arts. So when I am speaking to or performing in front of a community, I feel like the people I am making the most impact on are girls and women who are 
also very connected to the art form. And by not being able to mirror that or reflect any of those real things, we're not just being sensitive. I think I feel like there's damaging. Yeah, I think it's really what you're seeing is what's happening, you know, in a typical Bisako type of setting where it's like we don't, we, we're trying to avoid that sensuality. You know, we don't want you to see you tapping into that in any way. And that's not modest. That's not sneeze. And there are a lot of, you know, um, a lot of emphasis on sneeze in the high schools. And they know that you're a role model. And I think that that's what they're afraid of. But, you know, it just, it has to happen in Zumba classes where girls feel comfortable to move. Um, It has to happen because girls need to know that there's nothing wrong with that. Um, But yeah, you're absolutely hitting on this the safeguarding of tinius and every minute detail. And that's really hard for performers. And I think honestly, you would probably just from knowing I've never met you, but reading about you and listening to your podcast, like I would trust you that you would find that fine balance of like being modest, you know, and you're, you're not going to be up there, Britney Spears, you know, you're going to be modest and you're doing, and your songs and your words are Lashim Shemayim. It wouldn't make any sense if you were doing moves that didn't work congruous with that. So I feel that, you know, I, I would trust you that you would find that perfect balance, but, but not everyone is going to, you know, be, be comfortable with, with just giving you free reign to make your own decisions with that since it's such a sensitive topic. Uh, I did find my balance and part of that balance was also coming to terms with the budgeting and the money aspect. Yeah, so I did find that the more conservative, the more yeshivish communities have less budgets for women-only events or for, I'm not talking about private parties like bat mitzvahs, I'm talking about schools or community events. I think the more open-minded communities definitely put more of a value on having women by women or women for women engagement. Mm -hmm. So... Thank you so much, Alex, for coming on the show and talking about all these all these topics that we think about on a daily basis. Well, well thank you do. so much for inviting me. This was really, really exciting. And we did not talk at all about how they pay you or if you, do you feel valued for your time and all your efforts or is this, you know, public service and sacrifice that you're making for the Jewish community? I just love when I read letters that are published. <laughs> I love when people email me, random people... I've never heard of have gotten my phone, my phone number and called me personally to thank me or give me feedback about an article like that is everything. Um, but no, I am not the primary breadwinner. This would not make it. We would be living in a shack if I were. <laughs> so I do not count on my, you know, part-time articles um, to sustain our family. And thank God, you know, I, I'm, in, I'm in a position after our many years of investment that I don't have to be the primary breadwinner anymore, even though I was for so many years. So, yeah, for those aspiring writers out there who want to make this like a living, that's a whole other podcast. How I, I would I would include them in the starving artist category. It's not easy. Yeah. Well, thank you for being honest and sharing. Thank you. It's so appreciated. And I can't wait to see what you are working on next. Great. Awesome. Well, you can follow me on Facebook. I'm under Alex Fletcher. Um, and I also have a professional page, too, which you can see linked on my personal page. So, I, And as well, I'll plug my website. It's www.alexandrafletcher.com. Um, and you'll see all my writings there, past and present. And if you have been enjoying this podcast, please make sure to write a review and subscribe and tell your friends to check us out as well. See you next time.